0: Good morning once again, beloved. Great to see everyone here. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. As we continue in our series, Growing in Grace, a study through Peter's second epistle. This morning I'd like to begin by first reading our text once through together and then after we can seek to apply it. Um, Last week we started covering this final section of chapter 1. So today will be part 2 of our sermon, The Infallibility of Scripture. So for context, I want to begin reading this morning in verse 16 and we'll read right down to the end of the chapter. So 2 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 16. Here now is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter writes, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The testimony of Scripture is that we have a true word, a reliable word, a word that we can trust. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. It says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, that every word of God proves true. And then twice in Isaiah 65, 16, the Lord calls himself the God of truth. The God of truth. And in Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the prophet writes, but the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. And the New Testament agrees with the old, calling God a God of truth. For example, John chapter 3, verse 33 says that God is true. God is true. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Praise to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, he is the true God. The true God. And then there are several passages in the Old Testaments, in the Old and New Testaments, that tell us that God cannot lie. For example, in Hebrews 6:18. It says it is impossible for God to lie. And so the testimony of scripture is that we have the true word, a reliable word, a word that we can trust. God's word is true. It is trustworthy. The writers of the Old and New Testaments also claim the fact that the scripture is God speaking himself. Again and again in the Old Testament we read phrases like the word of the The word of God came upon me. Or thus saith the Lord. Or when Isaiah the prophet in chapter 1 verse 2 said, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The New Testament also has the same claims as the Old Testament. Most notably in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, which says man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in Matthew 5, 18, not the smallest letter or stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then in John 17, verse 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, Paul reminds us of Scripture's inspiration as he writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, tre- for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so over and over again, the Scriptures remind us we have the true word, the very word of God. And that's precisely the message of the text before us today. Now, as I've mentioned um, going throughout this study, the audience to whom Peter writes to were being besieged by false teachers. They were facing persecution outside of the church through tyranny and awful persecution, and they were facing it inside the church by these false teachers, these deceptive deceptive teachers. And one of the things these false teachers were trying to undermine was the church's trust in the scriptures. And so Peter writes this epistle in order to expose them. And in chapter two, he does so in vivid detail, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. But it's not enough to merely know who they are you have to defend yourself against what it is that they say and so in this epistle Peter is building up these three lines of defense that we see emerge in the text and they're all built around having a knowledge of the truth a knowledge of the truth remember that was Paul's favorite term five or six times in the letters to the church you must have a knowledge of the truth In fact, 16 times in just a short epistle, Peter uses that word gnosis for knowledge, and it refers to not just um, common knowledge, but knowledge that is grounded in truth. And so if we're going to defend ourselves against error and destructive heresies that you see in chapter 2, we must know the truth. We must know the scripture. And Peter highlights for us three Areas, if you will, that every believer must know in order to protect themselves against false teachers. Protection number one is what we covered in the first 11 verses of chapter one you must know your salvation. Protection number two, you must know your scriptures, which is what we're in now. And then protection number three is the final chapter you must know your sanctification. And so Peter's point is this if you know your scriptures, and if you know you're being set apart and are being called to be sanctified, and if you know that you are truly saved, then you have set your defense against the deception of these false teachers. Now, currently, we're looking at knowing your scripture, and one of the first questions Peter addresses is, how are we to know if scripture is true? How are we to be sure about it? Well, Peter gives us essentially two lines of verification in these closing verses of chapter 2. First is Peter's eyewitness experience, and we looked at that last week in verses 16 to 18. And then secondly is God's supernatural revelation, and we're going to cover that today in verses 19 to 21. Those are the two lines of testimony. You have the eyewitnesses who wrote it, and you have the Spirit of God who inspired it. Two lines of verification and together they are essentially two strands that um, tie an unbreakable knot around the true word of God. Now remember what Peter said about his eyewitness experience in verses 16, 16 to 18. Peter's point was quite simple. He said, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but rather we were eyewitnesses. And what Peter was saying was, Uh, you weren't getting some made-up myth or some um, second-hand information from us when we came to. Rather, verse 17, we were eyewitnesses of his second-coming honor and glory. And in verse 18, for we ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we came to discover that what Peter was talking about was the miraculous event and transformation that he witnessed on the mount of transfiguration. And so Peter's first line of verification is because of his firsthand experiences. He says, "We were with him on the holy mountain. We were, ourselves heard the Father's voice. Um we saw a glimpse of his second coming glory. Um so when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we weren't writing about cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw a glimpse of second coming glory. And so Peter says, you can believe the scriptures we write are true because number one, you have eyewitnesses who have written it. Eyewitnesses who have written it. The second line of verification that we're going to be covering today is God's supernatural revelation. Not only did they have these supernatural experiences, but they were also given supernatural revelation. God, by means of the Holy Spirit, superintended the recording of all their experiences and of all their writings so that they, in effect, were the revelation of God himself. Incredible. It's just incredible. Peter, after all, might be expecting someone to say, well, Peter, you know, I'm glad you had your experience, but your experience can't be the standard of truth. I mean, lots of people have experiences real and unreal, let's be honest. So, as good as your first-hand experience is, and as wonderful as it, you know, must have been to have walked with Jesus, to seen all of his miracles, to have seen him after his resurrection, and as great as it was to have seen a glimpse of his second coming glory on Mount of Transfiguration, there must be a way to more fully confirm your word than just your experience as true as it was and as valid as it was there must be more than that and the answer is there is there is the scripture the scripture and that's what peter's point is in verse 19 so let's notice how it begins he says and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed Literally, the Greek order in this, and it's important for interpretation to notice the order. The little Greek is, and we have more certain the prophetic word. And we have more certain the prophetic word. More certain than what? More certain than experience. Even the valid, genuine experience of the apostles. Peter's reply to anyone who wants to question his experience is that there is a more reliable source that is the word of God. If you don't believe me, then you'll have to believe the word of God. Now, as I told you uh, this earlier, the phrase in the Greek there reads simply this way, and we have more certain the prophetic word. Now, some commentators have felt that this statement could be understood in a different way than the order that it appears in. Some commentators have felt that this phrase indicates that the apostles' experience actually validates the scriptures. In other words, what Peter would be saying is, by our experience, we have made the prophetic word even more sure. And the idea there would be that the prophetic word might be true, but by our experience, we have made it even more sure. In other words, our experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, say, has somehow verified the Old Testament prophecies of second coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now that is certainly a possible meaning, but again, the the literal interpretation of the text reads, and we have more certain the prophetic word. So while it is true that they saw Christ's majesty and that in seeing his majesty, they may have had in their own minds a confirmation of the Old Testament prophetic word however to say that their experience then made the prophetic scriptures more sure would be very strange statement to make so that interpretation doesn't make any sense to me but essentially it would be saying as strong as the word of God is there is something even stronger and that is our experience and now you've really turned the table and you have experience verifying revelation all right but quite to the contrary God himself has repeatedly emphasized as we've seen the last two uh, weeks that the word is inerrant the word is infallible and all sufficient source of truth it never needs to be helped along or or validated as it were by some um, human experience and so I don't believe here God is elevating experience above his revelation that's ridiculous The purpose of verses 16 and 18 was not to show the greater source of truth is experience, but simply to show that the writers who wrote the New Testament and who spoke of Christ's coming did not follow cleverly devised myths that they had just invented in their heads, but they themselves were eyewitnesses. So Peter is saying that's the first line of evidence But then he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And the we here really refers to all of us. It's not the emphatic we in verse 18, which was speaking about um, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were the witnesses. That was the first we. It's the uh, generic usage of it, we, um, that we see here, which is together, collectively, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. As reliable and helpful as Peter's experience was, the prophetic word of scripture is more sure. That's the idea here. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 8. He said, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So, Paul is saying that, there, that the many prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming and recorded in the New Testament are the confirmation of the Old Testament prophecies. The New Testament writers confirm the Old Testament prophecies, providing it to be the sure word. They reaffirm that indeed the second coming will come to pass. And so the writing of the New Testament, which reiterates the second Coming prophecies is now a more sure word. The word itself testifies to itself. And that's even more sure than the experience of the apostles. In Romans 15, Paul is saying that Jesus came to the Jews as the um, perfect minister, fulfilling the Mosaic law entirely in his person and work. And he came first to the Jews. Why? To verify that God keeps his word and to confirm the Old Testament pledges of the Messiah's salvation and kingdom and future glory. Christ came and confirmed the truth of the Abrahamic covenant. Everything that the Old Testament said came true in the person and work of Christ and in his blood signaling that God kept his promise and that what the Father said was true. And then the New Testament writers wrote all about the second coming and they confirmed the prophecies of the Old Testament writers and And so Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now that phrase in verse 19, the prophetic word is an expression in um, Peter's day, which embraced the entire Old Testament. Don't think of this as just a specific messianic prophecies that are in the Old Testament. But this is the Old Testament as a whole. It is the inspired word. The entire Old Testament was in one way or another, anticipating the coming of messiah and that's why in Romans um, 16 25 Paul talks about the revelation of the mystery and in verse 26 the prophetic writings you know you're going to see in, in New Testament language um, the the prophetic scriptures the prophetic writings that doesn't refer to just the the prophecies that's speaking to the old testament as a whole as as all of the old testament looks ahead to the coming messiah it is the whole of god's truth that lays down the hope of salvation and messiah and in both cases here in romans paul says the prophetic writings and then peter says the prophetic scriptures the adjective prophetic simply embraces all of scripture And so Peter has described the word as carrying a prophetic tone, a a prophetic um, element that characterizes it generally. And that is because the whole Old Testament is a prophetic word spoken about Messiah. All of it points ahead to Messiah. And to simply illustrate that, one only needs to turn to John's gospel. John chapter 5, verse 39, if you want to refresh your memory, turn there. One of the great verses when we went through John's gospel, and you know that this is coming on the heels of um, healing the man of 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. And of course, Jesus is doing this miraculous work and working on the Sabbath, and it drives the teachers of the law absolutely crazy. And he reminds them that his Father is working in and, and soul, mind, till now. But after he goes through this huge dialogue in chapter 5, really Jesus is starting to home in on the condemnation and he says to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that testify about me. Jesus says, God, through the scriptures, they're all about me. They're looking ahead to me. In Luke chapter 24, you remember the scene of Jesus and the the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus in the beginning is walking and he's veiled his appearance to them and the disciples are defeated and they're walking and oh no, it's all over. The Messiah has been crucified. And in Luke 24 in verse 27, Jesus says something incredible here. It says first, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is referring to the Old Testament in all the scriptures. And then down in verse uh, 44, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, look at this, in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Imagine that Bible study. Jesus taking you through the whole Old Testament and saying, there I am, there I am, there's a picture, there's a foreshadow. Incredible. Genesis all the way to Malachi. The whole Old Testament speaks of Christ in one way or another. He is the scene and unseen subject of the scriptures so whether it's the word of the old testament prophets or the new testament apostles it is a more fully confirmed word peter is uh, referring to all inspired revelation just like paul is referring to all inspired revelation when he says in two timothy three that all scripture is breathed out by god all scripture is breathed out by god now back in verse 19 there's a lot more here to get into so peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention we'll stop right there for a moment that word well in the greek is the word uh, uh kalos it means noble honorable right you would do um right you would do well to pay attention and so here peter is calling for a careful heeding of scripture He's saying to all of us, look, you're going to be exposed to false teaching. Uh, Chapter 2 specifically says who will bring, secretly bring in these destructive heresies. So number one, you have to know your salvation. You have to know you're in Christ. You have to know where your faith stands. Examine yourselves, whether to see that you're in the faith. You have to know it's not by some prayer that you prayed or work that you did, that you were saved by the grace of God through the faith of God, faith in God. And then he says in this section. And you've got to know your scripture. And, and that's the second safeguard. And since we have the prophetic word. More fully confirmed. You will do well Peter says. To pay attention to it. Should have a careful heeding of scripture. And then to make his point. Even more direct. He offers a, a, a beautiful metaphor. In verse 19. He says as to a lamp. Shining in a dark place. You know, if you lived in the first century, a lamp was a necessity as it lit your path on where you're walking both inside and outside. And so it is with the word of God as the light lights our path in this dark world. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. And that's what Peter is getting at here as he mentions a lamp shining in a dark place. He's saying you'd do well to pay attention to God's word as it will be a lamp shining light into the darkness. It will be a light of truth and of virtue in an ever-increasing dark world, he says. And then notice what he says next. He says you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until... Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There is coming a dawning, beloved. A dawning. Now let's follow this beautiful thought all the way through the lamp. We know it's the Word of God. So that means the lamp, the Word of God, isn't the sun. The sun The sun bringing this dawning then is Christ. Christ. But... Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, we need the lamp. Until it, until that happens, we need the lamp. We need the light of God's word. The lamp is God's truth, shining His light and filling our hearts up. In the meantime, Romans thirteen twelve says the day is at hand. We've talked and looked at the scriptures many times on we're in the last days. We've been in the last days and Christ's return is seen here in this text once again and when he returns he will totally destroy the darkness as the full blazing glory of his kingdom arrives and banishes the night into the lake of fire. He's thrown the whole thing in the lake of fire. But what's he mean there when he says "And the morning star rises in your hearts? Well the morning star is the Greek, Greek word phosphorus, which you can guess we get phosphorus, that shines in the darkness. It literally means um, light bringing, light bringing. And when the day dawns, the morning star arises, Numbers 24, 17, it says A star shall come out of Jacob. And indeed, that star Messiah will come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all the way in the final book, the Revelation of jesus christ in revelation 22 16 jesus also says i am the root and the offspring of david the bright morning star so all the way back in the pentateuch it said messiah would be a star and then cleared to the other end of scripture the very last book of the bible jesus pronounces he would be the morning star and then finally notice the very end there verse 19 it says the morning star rises in your hearts now what does that mean there in your hearts Um, is this some kind of spiritual event is is this kind of spiritualized Um, isn't this talking about the return of Christ the day of the Lord the the bringing of the kingdom the day dawning what does this heart reference mean well I want to read to you a little section from John MacArthur's book he wrote a possible meaning that I appreciated he writes Christ will return in a blaze of physically visible all-encompassing light That will affect everyone for blessing or cursing. That's the day of the Lord. And change the millennial earth. Eventually destroying the universe. And replacing it with new heavens. And the new earth. The reference to the hearts indicates his return. Will also transform believers. Into perfect perfect reflections of the truth and righteousness of Christ. And make them into the image of his glory. At his second coming. Christ will replace the perfect. Temporal revelation of scripture with the perfect eternal revelation of his person he will fulfill the written word and write it forever on the hearts of his glorified saints end quote i like that i think that's a a good description of what peter might be referring to here as the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts now as we come to these final verses in chapter one peter continues his emphasis on the importance of scripture but here he has a caution for us Um, let me just read these first uh these final two verses together again with you and then after we can go through them he says in verse 20 knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit Now here Peter goes back again to the source of scripture. He's saying, know this first of all. You can trust the word of God. You can trust the word of God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. In fact, in the Old Testament the evidence of a false teacher was that the false prophet spoke for himself. He spoke his own words. He he made up his own revelations and he did not speak for God. And we see this, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. Listen to what he says here. He writes, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, oh, no, disaster shall come upon you. So how did they know if they were false prophets or not? They weighed what the false prophets said with the word of God, right? We talked about this in detail last week. You must weigh, is this what God has said? Or is this some new revelation that we've never even heard before? Pretty good sign right there that it's from a false teacher. We must always weigh man's word, especially including your pastor, to what God has said. It's your responsibility to confront me if I'm saying something against the word of God. And I would expect that, and I would certainly appreciate it. If it's not aligned with God's word, they're a false teacher. They're a false teacher. A few verses later in Jeremiah 23:21, God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways. And from the evil of their deeds. And then down in verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. That's a real popular thing today. Oh, I I had a dream, I had a vision. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts? Don't be deceived, beloved. Don't be deceived. God's warning is this. There are many false prophets who don't speak for me. They speak for themselves. Don't listen to them. Their message is not my message. So Peter says, look, the writers of Scripture are not like those prophets. The writers of Scripture speak for God. So he starts verse 20 this way. Know this first of all. This is point number one. If you're you're going to be confident about Scripture, the first thing that you have to know is this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The false prophet spoke of his own things, but no prophecy of God's truth comes from someone's own um, epilusis. Epilusis. This word epilusis is translated here, interpretation, and I think it's kind of important unfortunate translation that so makes people think that it's talking about how you interpret scripture when it's really talking about the source of scripture. The word means a releasing or an explanation but the problem is he's not talking about how you interpret scripture he's talking about where it came from, how it originated, what its source was and so the idea is this if you're going to trust the lamp that that lights the the dark places, know this first and foremost, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from a human source. One good translation I did find after a lot of searching said it this way. For no prophecy recorded in Scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. That's the idea of it. No prophecy recorded in Scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. That's the the meaning of this. Peter couldn't be talking about our interpretation or verse 21 would make zero sense. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That explains what he means in verse 20. Quite the contrary to Scripture being of human origin, it is of divine origin. For no prophecy was ever, notice how emphatic this is, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. The Bible is not the product of men. And to verify this, I want you to go back just a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll remember this possibly from our time going through the first epistle, but I want you to see it. This is such an important parallel passage and we spent time when we were in first peter because you know liberal theologians teach this idea that that the writers of scripture were just these old misogynistic men who just came up with this stuff to to control you and and therefore you can just sort of pick and choose the scriptures that you'd like to follow they're not actually the words of god well ask yourself that question after reading this passage first peter chapter one verse 10 peter writes as to this salvation and remember the first um, nine or ten verses we're talking about this glorious salvation that we had in christ um, as to the salvation he says the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you look at this made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know number one what person or time the spirit of christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is, this is incredible insight into the mystery of divine inspiration. <laughs> Ask yourself, what in the world that could possibly mean if these men were inventing their own prophecies? How could they be searching and inquiring their own made-up stories to find out what they meant? That means makes no sense. If they just made it up. They would have just made up what it meant. But it was the spirit of Christ within them that predicted these things. So for example, just imagine um, Isaiah the prophet as he's written the 53rd chapter. And he finishes the chapter, he puts the pen down. He began to make careful searches and inquiries. In other words, he was carefully poring over all the scriptures, including the scriptures he wrote, seeking to know... What person? Who is this? Who is the Messiah? And the time? When will Messiah come? He wrote the thing. But he's seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings, the cross of Christ, and the glories to follow the resurrection. The return of christ the reign of the kingdom it's you know five six seven hundred years before messiah even comes and he's writing these scriptures down and he's seeking to know what person who will this messiah be and 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 what when will be the time of his coming so the prophets they were writing these things but they were inquiring seeking to know what does this all mean from moses to malachi incredible And so even though God has revealed to them the redemptive deliverer and the future coming of Messiah, they can see that, and the grace that would come to them, they could see that, they couldn't understand all of the details. So they made careful searches and inquiries seeking to understand what person or time they were writing about. This is incredible. Such an incredible look into the mystery of divine inspiration in scripture. So back to 2 Peter, uh, what's He's saying here then he's saying in verse 20 know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture ever came by some act of the human will just the opposite verse 21 but men Allah is the word for but it means but on the other hand men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit notice also it notes here that Every author of all 66 books in the Bible were called men. And all of those men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The carried along is a um, present um, passive um, participle, which just means that they were um, continually carried along. The same verb is used twice in Acts 27 to describe um, Paul's ship that's being um, blown along by the wind continually. And so Peter's saying in a similar way, the prophets raised their spiritual sails and and the Holy Spirit filled them with this breath and, and blew them along in the direction he chose for them to go as they wrote and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love what it says in Luke 70. It says, speaking of God, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. He carried them along. So the testimony of Scripture is clear and consistent. The Holy Spirit is the divine author, the producer of the prophetic word. No Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. This is not a book written by man. This is a book recorded by men, but authored by God, the Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Notice, for the, spirit, whoop, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So you see the Spirit is the only one who knows the thoughts of God. So the Holy Spirit inspired the writers and carried them along as they wrote the word of god and yet these were mere men Th- these were these were men they weren't lifeless pens they weren't being zapped and just carried along and they had no idea what happened to them linguistic uh people who know that sort of thing can can tell the tendencies of of certain writers but Scripture is very clear. Um, They haven't come up on this on their own. This is God-breathed, Scripture, all Scripture, breathed out by God, breathed out by God. So they were not passive, they were active in this, but the Holy Spirit, through them, breathed out God's flawless and infallible Word. And that is why, beloved, we have a more sure Word. We have a more sure Word. We can trust the Word. And why we have this lamp shining in a dark place. And it's going to be our light until the morning star rises. This is the gift of God. One of the many gifts he gives his people. God's word. Our God isn't silent. Our God has spoken. And he's spoken through history. And it is recorded for us in scripture. And you know, immediately following the morning star... And the day dawns in the day of glory. Then will come the kingdom of Christ. And then he becomes not just the morning star, but the blazing sun, who then becomes the lamp of our eternal dwelling place. No more need for the sun. He'll light up the the whole place for God's people. And when he appears, scripture says, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But until that blazing light, Dissipates all the darkness. Peter says, Beloved, you would do well. You would do well to pay attention to the lamp, as it will shine a light to your path in this dark place. For if you're going to stand against error, beloved, you must know your salvation and you must know the scriptures. You must know the scriptures. In fact, just to close, Ephesians 6.17 reminds us to stand firm if you want to withstand the, the day of evil. Earlier it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And then at the end, he says, take the helmet of salvation. And that could be symbolized as your assurance. Not just protection, not just protecting your mind, but assurance, a confidence in the work Christ has accomplished on the cross to save you, to pay the penalty of your sin and death. And then he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God, the lamp, the lamp. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Beloved, we are commanded to stand firm. Just because you're saved, don't be deceived into thinking evil isn't crouching at your door, ain't coming after your family, isn't trying to destroy your marriage. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Scripture says, resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. You know, if Satan can't have your soul... He wants to render you fruitless for the kingdom of God. He wants to trip you up just enough to to ruin your testimony, to make you a fool, to make you a lousy witness for the kingdom of God. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, the Bible says. Hold fast to Christ and have his word written on your hearts. If you're struggling today um, for any reason in your walk of faith or, or something is going on in your life, I want to encourage you, you can come forward for prayers or stay after with Sister Elizabeth or with any one of us. We would be happy to pray with you. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we praise our Lord. He is our living hope. Thank you, and Lord bless you.